Before I begin, I, I really would like to take a minute. Um, as most of you may know, my father passed away here um, about a week and a half ago. And a number of the Valley Brook people um, attended either the wake or the funeral. And um, I was really touched. I was, I was um, more thankful than I thought I would ever be. But thank you, you Valley Brook family who supported our family. Thank you for my mother. Um, it, we were very touched. This morning, I'll be bringing uh, some ideas to you out of the book of Zechariah and out of the book of Deuteronomy. One of the things that I do in my job is I teach a, a daily staff Bible study and devotion, just a short teaching. And as we go along, in our Bible study, if we are at all diligent and are at all open-hearted, inevitably God will speak to us, and I felt spoken to, and I want to share that just briefly with you. After that, um, Sarah will come up, and she will give you more of a ministry update and more specifics about what's happening in Tanzania at Rafiki Village. Um, so be, let's begin. Sorry, am I in the right place? Let me begin by reading out of the book of Zechariah, chapter 7, verses 1 through 3. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month the month of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent Sherazar and Regem Melech together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Now, before we move on, let me give you a little of the historical background. This is in a period of Israel's history. It's well after Israel was in Egypt, after the 40 years in the desert, after the period of the judges, after the period of the kings, after the period of Josiah, the last good king. Israel, and Judah specifically, had descended to such a level that God removed them from the land. He used Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians to take them away to far-flung places only to return them. Now, this time of their history, when Nebuchadnezzar sacked Jerusalem, they specifically looked at one event that was very, very um, heartbreaking to them, and that was the destruction and the burning of Solomon's temple. They realized that that signified such a tremendous loss, God with them, and then they were removed. And what the people did in the far-flung places is every day, every year on that day, they held a fast. They fasted and prayed to commemorate this great loss. Now, God in his sovereignty, as he had predicted through the prophets, would bring the people back, and he does so. And a remnant of the people come back to Jerusalem. They first build the wall. Then they build their houses. Then after God gets on them a bit, they start to build the temple again. 
and the temple is being built up. So some men, some wise men from Bethany, have a question. It's a religious question. They say, look, we had a day of fasting because of this great loss, but now the temple is coming up. Perhaps we should turn this into a day of feasting. And that was a question presented to God through these, this delegation. Now, it is interesting how God answers the question. And God answers our questions sometimes in very surprising ways. And he doesn't answer this question directly. He answers this question by asking a question. We read in verses four through six. Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land, the priests and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for these past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? In a way, God is saying, what is the motive in your religious life? Is it more about you or is it more about your love for me? Now, I have to tell you, when I was teaching past this in Zechariah, this spoke to me. It gave me pause. It led me to some healthy self-evaluation. What are my motives? Now, motives are tough. They're deep waters of the heart, if you will. It's complex to understand our motives. It's a tough nut to crack, as we self, even as we self-examine. But God was calling, and God says in these verses, ask all the people and the priest. God was calling the people to self-examine their hearts. Now, God helps them with the answer. He gives them a clue, and he reminds them in the following verses what he had commanded the people before the exile and how the people had no interest in listening. Let me read for you, and I didn't put it up there. Zechariah verses... Uh, 7 verses 9 through 11. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and covered their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint. In a sense, what God is saying, you're asking a legitimate religious question. You're asking, how do we move forward? But what I'm doing is challenging you to, what is your motivation? Do your hearts and do your actions throughout the year given support what you're doing this one day. He says the pre-exile people, they had a religious life. They had temple worship. But their hearts were far away from God, and he swept them away. Now, in our modern church life, in our day-to-day, we might ask the question like this. Do our actions and attitudes during the week do anything to support 
what we profess in this place on Sunday, what we sing in worship, and the actions that we have. Do our lives speak of our love for God during the week? I have to confess, sometimes when we're singing some of these praise songs, I think there should be an asterisk up there under some of the statements that I am led to sing. And the asterisk below would say, note, this is really more of a prayer than it is a reality. Do you ever feel that way? Well, again, as I was going through and teaching Zechariah, this is what God brought to me. A few weeks ago, um, Creighton Ring was here teaching in the book of Job, and he pointed to this concept of letting Scripture interpret Scripture, where one Scripture, we have an idea about what God is defining as true, and we use other Scriptures to define it and refine it and contain it and put boundaries around it. In a like way, we should understand that Scripture also supports Scripture, that when we come up with a question in Zechariah, we can look in other places of the Bible to help answer those questions and actually expand our understanding now, the people of Zechariah's day, I am sure, would look in one place to answer the questions about love. If God challenged them about their love for him, where would they look? They would look in Deuteronomy 6. Let me read that for you. Deuteronomy 6, 4, verses, I'm sorry, chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you are walking along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Also, Jesus clarifies love in the New Testament. In fact, he gives us what the greatest commandment is by quoting Deuteronomy 6.5 when he says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He also indicates that our love for him is indicated by us being willing and longing to follow his commandments. Question, how are we doing with that? Not just here, but through the week. How are we doing loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? Again, as I was introspective about this, as God brought this to me, um, I found myself wanting. And maybe there's a few of you that also find yourself wanting what to do. Well, thankfully, the same God and the same Bible that brings us conviction is also the same God and the same Bible that lovingly brings us direction and hope. And what might that be? I have a few ideas that I offer for your consideration. First, 
we have to set the right foundation. There is only one foundation to love God from, and that is from his grace. That foundation is Christ Jesus. All men fall short in this. The truth is, is the idea that we would love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength is absolute folly, unless you're much, much better than me. We fall short. Yet God still loves us. Our righteousness is not something we've earned, but it is a gift he has given us. He has delivered us from the penalty of sin by his sacrifice. He died for our sins that we might live and that we might stand right before God. We must understand that he chose us, not because of our goodness, but in accordance of his love and mercy. It's his divine prerogative that chose us. In that prerogative, he chose us. And really, it's despite us, because truly we were more his enemies than we were his friends when he chose us. We are right before God because of his mercy. God's wonderful divine love for us that is given through grace and mercy of our Savior Jesus Christ, it has to be our prime motive for pursuing God to love him. This must be our foundation. Now, if you're here today and you don't understand what I just told you, before you do anything else, seek to understand what I have just said. Second idea. God gives us pastors. He gives us teachers. He gives us elders. He gives us wise men and women in congregations. It is a gift to us. If you did not understand what I just told you about God's love through Christ Jesus, seek one of them out that you might understand. If it is your desire to truly pursue loving God as he would have us in a way that is honoring and right, and you find yourself stumbling, do you seek this resource? Do you, are you open to listening and engaging the gift of pastors and teachers and wise men and women that God has put in our congregation? Let me read for you verses 6-4 again. <clears throat> Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The time of history that this, these verses were written was just before the people were ready to enter the promised land. God had delivered them from the slavery of Egypt. They had wandered in the desert for 40 years, and Moses was preparing them to go in. Now, it's important for, them, for you to understand that actually when those people, the, house, the, the family of Israel, the Jewish people, when they were captives in Egypt, by and large, they were polytheists. They were so enmeshed in the culture of Egypt that many of them worshipped idols. And when they left, they came into a place of idol worshippers. And in fact, in their 40 years, they engaged polytheists. And God was calling them to go into a place into the promised land and displace polytheists, people who believed in several gods, people who bowed down before idols. 
it was very, very important for them, for the people to understand that God is one, that he's not many, that he's not a stone. What we believe in God is very important to us loving him correctly. It's also important for our good and our protection spiritually. Do we know who God is and where do we find out who he is? Can you name 10 attributes of God? By knowing who God is, we will not make the mistake. We will not mistake knowing who he is not. We must understand who God is in order to love him correctly. This is adoration, and it is a good beginning to loving God. In verse 5, we read, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Well, I would say a good place to start is with a humble heart, acknowledging our failings and our lack of love. It is also a place, a place to start is a thankfulness for the salvation that God gives us that is not dependent on our level of love. We may not always love God as we should, but we should desire to do so. We should, if you will, want to want to. And this is a wonderful basis for our prayer. Do we pray this with all our soul? Our strength. What we put our strength to in life is awfully, often an indication of where our heart is or where our devotion or where our love is. It's a reflection. Yet we can willfully, God gives us will, we can willfully direct our energies and our strength and our actions, and this can lead and affect our hearts. Do we live proactively and energetically toward the love of God? Verse 6 reads, These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. What is on our hearts? You know, I think a good way you know, sometimes you see something and you, you know somebody closely and you can understand, oh, they're struggling with this or they're happy about this. This is what's on their heart. But if I wanted to know what was on Anne's heart or what's on Sarah's heart, probably a good indication would be ask their friends and they would tell you what is on the heart of Sarah or what is on the heart of Anne. What would your friends say if I asked you, what is on your heart? Is there any indication that the commands of God are on your heart? These commands that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Well, I have to tell you, if you want to know the best way to kill an old farmer that turned into a missionary, just ask him to teach through the, old, through the minor prophets, because it almost killed me. It was very challenging and it was very good, but really it should not be that way. What are we doing in our lives to love God's word, to understand his commands? It can be challenging, 
but we should embrace the challenge and we should take the challenges as opportunities to seek and learn more of who he is is our desire to know and love God's commands his ways in our hearts I have the blessing in my job part of my job description to give a staff devotion every day and it is a blessing I can't put that into your life but what can you put into your life that would draw you near to God's word that you might know and that his words and commands might be in your heart verse 7 reads impress them on your children <clears throat> talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road when you lie down and when you get up now if we know who God is and we love him with all our heart soul and mind and his commandments that are on our hearts then it should naturally flow that we would want to teach our children and this command also is uh, is a parallel to the Great Commission in the New Testament where all believers are called to the Great Commission yet sometimes our hearts aren't right but even so we need to be ready to share God's perfect love for us even when our love for him is not so perfect you know <clears throat> I think all of us would be very willing to inherit some good thing whether that would be a car or some money you know we have inherited eternal life through the words of some person we're willing to inherit but so often we're not so willing to give an inheritance or let it flow through us you know we can understand the work of God and salvation in history as people who are saved sharing with people in effect bringing them this inheritance them embracing it and we're called to then send it out we see history sequentially but just remember that one day when God gathers us all up the sense of sequential will be no longer there and will we have been found faithful to people as people that weren't that were not only willing to receive this great inheritance from God but to offer it to others you know as we look at um, training children bringing them Sarah and I um, sometimes it can feel like the whole road when we consider the 85 at the village and our own too and that certainly is a um, point of prayer again we should be even when our hearts aren't inclined if we truly love God we will bring that love to others and especially our children in conclusion a few fi a f a final thought this delegation from Bethany in the time of Zechariah they had a legitimate question and they came to the right place they came to the priest and the prophets asking how do we move forward history is changing how do we do our religious life right how do we do our ministry correctly now the same question that we have in Rafiki Sarah and I are very much involved mentally in considering the future of these children what is the right way forward and as I understand it even this congregation 
is considering what is the next step? What is the right way forward? I would suggest that we take this challenge that God gave the people of Zechariah's time before we answer the question of how to move forward. And we examine our hearts. Let us pursue this first and greatest commandment. Then when these very legitimate questions arise as to how to move forward, we might find ourselves walking closer to God and being better equipped to answer them correctly. Let me pray for this, uh, the conclusion of this portion, and then Sarah will come up and share. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, I thank you um, for your word, and I thank you that you give us a sure and great and beautiful foundation, that you give us your word and your spirit to guide us, that you give us pastors and teachers. Lord, I pray that you would move in our lives, that we might more and more love you as we should. I pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, Sarah? Excited you want to be? <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Um, whenever anybody speaks in a Tanzanian church, they always say, Buona Yesu Asifiwe, and then everybody says, Amen. So, Buona Yesu Asifiwe. Amen. Lord Jesus, be praised. All right, um, can you go ahead? I'm going to have Phil work the little thingy here. So it's interesting that Phil um, talked a little bit, I think, uh, some of the things he said at the end of, of his um, sermon kind of went along with something that we do at Rafiki, both in the school and in the children's homes and really kind of in all of our interactions with the children. We have um, made it, our goal to train the children in prayer. And when they pray, we're teaching them to use the ACTS acrostic. So probably most of you know it, but if you don't, it's A-C-T-S. It stands for Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. And it's just a really wonderful way to train children to pray, and it's a wonderful way to train ourselves to pray. It helps us to put first things first, to put God and who he is first. Um, and I thought maybe I would use that as my structure for sharing with you what's happening at Rafiki, since it's such a distinctive of our daily lives there. So um, starting out with adoration, um, a Bible teacher once explained this whole concept of really worshiping God in this first part as saying things that would be true about God even if we weren't here. Like if we, none of us existed, we were all just gone. What would be true about God? And so, and Phil, I heard him say, okay, can you name 10 attributes of God? And I had some here that are some of the very popular ones that the children like to say. But just looking at this picture, and this picture was taken just right outside my house. I went out in, on my sidewalk outside my house and took a picture. That's Mount Kilimanjaro. It is the highest mountain in Africa. It, um, you know, we're just a few degrees south of the equator, but it has permanent glaciers on top, so it's pretty high. Um, I don't know. Anybody want to give me an attribute of God that springs into your head just from this picture? Sovereign. Sovereign. Eternal. Eternal. Powerful. Powerful. Majestic. That's a popular one at Rafiki. <laughs> Creative, yeah. Anybody else? Omniscient. 
omniscient. He is all of that. I think that it's a wonderful way to start because as we look at the our particular work in Tanzania, but also Rafiki is in 10 African countries. And you can see the varying levels there of government corruption, of um, unrest, whether it's kind of civil unrest or if it's, um, if it's conflict between Muslims and Christians, um, HIV rates, poverty, hopelessness. But you, know, you really have to start with who, who is God? Who is God? And yeah, he's the creator. He's the owner of everything. He's the God who sees. He is all powerful. He is good. He is merciful. He is our savior. And that really is the basis for everything that we do there. So moving on, our next, uh, the next section in our Acts Acrostic is confession. And some of you, if you follow Rafiki on Facebook or if you happen to read my blog or whatever, you've seen either this picture or a picture like it. Um, the little girl there on my lap is Umu, and she is child number 51 at Rafiki, Tanzania. And you might think it odd for me to start my confession section um, with Umu because she really is such a reason for Thanksgiving and also certainly reason for supplication as well. Um, but I have to say that with the opportunity of bringing Umu into our village, um, God really revealed a lot of things to me about who I am and my sins and my weaknesses and my shortcomings. Um, kind of during this, during this time, Phil was teaching. He teaches devotions every morning, and I'm part of the staff, so I'm there every morning. And I don't know, have you ever been listening and somebody's teaching about a scripture and you know it's a scripture passage that you've studied before you've heard it you've read it but they say something and you're like that's in there i've never heard that verse before have you ever experienced that okay so <laughs> phil was teaching and this verse came up and i was like that's those are my life verses oh my goodness listen to this from proverbs 30 um, verses one through what is it one through three it says, the man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. And I'm just here to tell you, I, I, I'm the worst missionary in the world. <laughs> And I really, I, I thought about changing the name of my blog to the worst missionary in the world, but I found out there's already a blog that's called that. And so then I realized I'm not only the worst missionary in the world, but I'm not even original. So, <laughs> so that was kind of too bad. So, um, but really, I mean, confession is not this thing that you do that, you know, okay, well, I commit a sin, and then I got to go confess, and then I get cleansed, and then, okay, I'm going to commit a sin. You know, we know we are cleansed completely in Christ at the moment of our salvation. But confessing our sin reminds us and keeps us very clear on the enormity of God's mercy and grace to us. But it also maintains honesty 
in our relationship with him, and it can with others as well. And so I just really want to confess to you, when people come to us and say, like, wow, you guys are amazing. Wow, what you guys do, it's awesome, you know. I just feel like I need to be really honest with you. This child was brought to us at Rafiki, and the story kept changing. But the first time I saw her, Phil wasn't even there. Um, my assistant, who's a Tanzanian social worker, was not there. I had never met the social worker from Tanzanian social welfare before. This person just shows up at my house with this child who they said they thought was four years old, weighed about 12 pounds, um, and said, we need you to take her right now. Here you go. <laughs> and, you know, normally I kind of like say, Hey, boss, what are you going to say about that? But he wasn't there. He was in Arusha. And uh, I, I didn't know what to do. We have five cottages. We have a limit of 10 kids per cottage. We have 50 kids living at Rafiki. Do the math. We can't, we can't do it. Sorry, can't do it. Um, and also, I was very new to the job. I've been um, filling in as the child care administrator, and I'm thinking about my schedule, and I'm thinking about mamas who are taking their time off, and I'm thinking about aunties and all of this, and I'm like, I don't have a spot for her. I can't fit this into my schedule. I don't know anything about taking care of malnourished children. I, you know, I mean, I can't do it. Or if we could do it, maybe you could just give her to me, and I'll take care of her at my house, and it'll be a secret. But, you know, it was like, I, I really just couldn't see how we could do it, and I could do it according to what's really our calling at Rafiki and what we're really trying to do. And by really following the guidelines that have been put in place by our directors for the good of the work. I couldn't see it. And even after I began to make my um, investigations a bit and was able to bring Phil into it and we could go and see her together with my assistant, um, Linda, and all of that, I still, as I, as I looked at all of the things that I would have to do to make it happen, I just kept feeling like, oh, isn't there somebody else who could do this? I'm too tired. I can't. What about NEMA Orphanage? You know, there's another orphanage, and they, they have way less staff, way less everything than we have. And I'm still thinking, well, maybe, maybe it'd be better for her to go there. Um, you know, just a lot of laziness and self-centeredness and thinking about, all the difficulties instead of what a great opportunity it was. Um, but it's very blessed to have Phil and to have directors who told me to keep going and keep trying and um, just so many people who were ready to like keep taking the next step forward and I was really kind of forced to do so. Show the next picture. This is a picture of us the day that um, that we took Umu to the hospital for the first time for her um, kind of pre-admittance health screening. Um, and what do you notice about, about this picture? So what do you, do you notice something special about Umu there? What she's wearing? Yeah, she has a head covering. Uh, Umu is from a, a Muslim family, and I was a little bit concerned about that. In Tanzania, in, in northern Tanzania, there are lots of Muslims. Um, there tends to be pretty peaceful coexistence, generally speaking, but in maybe the last year or so, there's just been quite a bit, um, just tensions rising, just, you know, a little bit at a time. 
And I think when we got ready to take her to the hospital and right away the aunt, you know, put this veil over her head, um, suddenly I thought, wait, wait a minute, you know, what's going to happen? Do these people really know what kind of a ministry we are? I mean, we aren't just sort of Christians who run an orphanage. <laughs> this is an absolutely gospel-driven ministry. This child is not going to be raised Muslim. And how, what's going to happen here? Um, and I was really fearful of that. And, um, and we even started to kind of get some murmurings that there was a Muslim kind of community worker who was trying to find some other way to get her somewhere else. And, and to this moment, I'm not really sure that her family members understand exactly the nature of the place where she is now living and how she's being raised. And, you know, I have to tell you, even now I'm fearful um, about what might happen. Just because she was being neglected, um, the, the social worker said that she really believed that, that this family was just trying to say, like, let her starve, just hoping she would die. Um, just because that's the case, it doesn't mean they won't want to come and visit her. And what's going to happen? What's going to happen? I'm the worst missionary in the world. I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what's going to happen there. Um, but, you know, God has found a way to work around my fears. So that's all for confession. I want to show you the next picture because this is where it gets good. This is the Thanksgiving portion. We were able to bring her in. And God provided so beautifully for every single thing, every worry I had, every need that we had. Um, the first thing was I knew enough about malnourished children to know that you cannot just start feeding them something. They, they will die. They are very fragile. They will not get better. And I knew I needed some guidance. And at our church in Moshi, there is a wonderful pediatrician um, through Duke University, and she really mostly works with pediatric HIV, but she said, oh, I'll take care of her. I'd love to take care of her. Just bring her to me. And so not only did I know who to take her to, and I knew it was someone who she really knew what she was doing, but it also got me through all of the difficulty, all of the lines, all of the confusion of the normal hospital system there. And every time I needed to take Umu into the doctor, I could just waltz right up and I would be seen. And so God really provided wonderfully with that. The other thing that I want to tell you about with this is this right here is what she's eating there, and it's called plumpy nut, okay? And maybe some of you have heard a little bit about plumpy nut before, but anyway, plumpy nut is a ready-to-use therapeutic food, and it's made mostly with peanuts, and it has like milk powder and a lot of sugar and vitamins, and it's this very specially formulated food that has revolutionized treatment of severe malnutrition um, because now it can be, the children can be treated outside the hospital. They can be treated in the community and it just means that they have less risk of picking up other infections and they're less stressed because they're in a home environment and it's just been a wonderful thing. Um, and I just feel like this highlights something that I really want to share. I mean, Phil and I wouldn't be doing this work if it weren't very much centered on the word of God and on the gospel. And that's our prayer, really, is that these children wouldn't just be saved in their lives, but that their souls would be saved. But I am so thankful for the work of so many people who do so many things 
that make this all possible. This, some, there were some doctors, some scientists, you know, who came up with this, and they probably had no thought to spiritual ramifications or anything. But because of this food right here, you know, Umu has the opportunity to be saved twice, you know? And so I just really, I really want people to know that whether it's a real gospel-centered ministry or if it's a medical outreach or so many different works that are being done overseas, they are good things. And if you keep a child alive, then you know God can work in that child's life. So we'll go ahead and... <laughs> and so there she is, just like the day before I left to come. So she looks even better than Phil or Lydia and Audrey have seen her. Um, this, I wrote underneath it, Mtoto Mkali, which in Swahili means like fierce or spicy child. And that is what she is. I mean, you can just see on her face. And I just want to thank God for how he made Umu, because I feel like he has really made her very fierce and determined on the inside. And it's just been amazing to me how little and weak and, and, and like such a little victim she looked. And, but consistently, as we've cared for her, she's shown herself to just be strong on the inside. She's little on the outside, but she's big on the inside. And I'm, I'm so thankful for how God has made her and that he's given her this opportunity. And she's lived all the way up to this time. And um, I'm really thankful for everybody who's prayed for her. I know lots of people have been quite struck by her story. So let's move on to the next one. All right, so this is kind of moving on, but we're still on Thanksgiving here. This is a picture of our wonderful John Deere tractor arriving. This is a story dear to Phil's heart. Um, when we first were talking about coming to Rafiki, they really were excited about the idea of Phil being a farmer, and I was a farmer kind of too. And, um, and they, you know, in my way, and they, um, you know, they were really excited about Phil, like, developing agriculture. But things, staffing situations kind of changed, and it turned out that they really needed Phil to be the village administrator. And, well, if there's some time later on for farming, great, but, you know, you're the boss. So he has had a lot to do other than that. And even right before we came to Tanzania three years ago, um, Phil had a connection who donated a tractor to Rafiki, and we went to pick it up. And I, I think it must have been the hardest thing in Phil's life to see this beautiful tractor and then to wave goodbye to it as it went to Malawi. <laughs> I was very impressed that he was, he was very willing for it to go, but God has been very good to us, and now it's really the time for us to be um, developing these things. And so God has once again provided another tractor, and this one is for Tanzania. And so how many acres of corn do we have? Thirteen. Thirteen acres <laughs> of corn, or maize as we call it there. Um, and my, uh, one of our mamas, Mama Susan, she just keeps telling me, the, the maize is strong, it is strong. Everybody's very excited, very impressed with the, the maize that we've been able to grow this year. So when we get back, we'll probably start harvesting it. So we are really thankful for that provision and Phil's ability to use some of his ex expertise there. 
Um, and then this is another aspect of our work. I'm uh, the Widows Program Coordinator at Urfiki, Tanzania. We have a program where women, uh, either widows or disadvantaged women from the Lutheran Church can make products, artistic things, jewelry, what have you. And um, I was just very thankful for my first multi-million order this spring, but it's multi-million shilling, so I won't tell you what it translates into dollars. Just think multi-million, that's pretty great, right? So anyway, it's been really great. The widows have um, really benefited from it. It's been something that was such a slow start. It took a lot of time to kind of get things worked out. Um, but it's been wonderful. There's one widow who was bedridden. She couldn't come you know, to, to get her money when the time came to pay for the things. And when they brought her the money, my coordinator, Rest Mary, who's in the picture, told me later, she said that this woman just like lifted her hands up and said, my husband is alive. Um, she's talking about the Lord. And, uh, and you know, these, these, these small things, uh, they make a big difference to the women there. And uh, just very thankful for that. All right. Oh, wait. Oh, and it's supplication. We're moving on. Sorry. Oh, there we go. Sorry. We're moving on to supplication. I, these are some of the women, some of the widows. And it just seems like things are always changing and new difficulties are always coming up. So I would really um, like to add some prayer requests here at the end, and one of them is for the widows, uh, that we would have some creativity. The lady who was letting us use her sewing machines to make the handbags has had to close up her shop, and so we don't really know what's gonna happen next, but I really want these women to be able to continue. It's, it's meant so much to them. Um, so we can move on to the next one. The next part about supplication, so we're still in Acts, is to pray for our staff. That is Mama Susan, and she's the mama for Umu. So you can see chubby Umu there being loving. And um, one of the things uh, about our staff that has really impressed me this year is to realize that much more than the work that Phil and I have with the individual children, we really are working so much more with the staff and developing them. And it's interesting. We really, we just have this group of young adults. I mean, other, there's one staff member, I think, who's older than we are. And the rest of them are all like in their 20s, single, young people. And we have this amazing opportunity to be mentoring them through staff devotions, Bible study, on-the-job training and this whole Deuteronomy 6 lifestyle of as we go, as we live, as we talk, as we get up and do things. And um, really would, would ask, and it is my prayer, that God would use us, because we do. We kind of feel like we're the worst missionaries in the world, or I do. You probably don't think that. But, you know, I, I mean, and I have to be honest, the, the way we were really called to Rafiki was our love for children. Like, it's the children that is where our hearts are, at least mine. Um, but we've really been moved much toward mentoring the adults who then do things with the children. And, and I think that's really actually the best way for it to work most of the time. Um, but the neat thing is, I mean, it really is kind of astounding. A lot of people come to us when they 
fill out their job applications. And it says, like, are, are you a Christian? And then it asks, like, when did you become a Christian? How did you become a Christian? And almost without exception, it says, yes, I am a Christian. I became a Christian when I was born. <laughs> and because I have a Christian family, that's how I became a Christian. And um, some, so some people, as you start to ask them more questions, though, you do start to get you know, a sense of, of a personal conversion experience. But there's much more of a sense of, like, I am from this group. It's, it's, it's a different mindset. But the neat thing that I saw this year um, and that I would really love to see happen with every member of our staff is when we were doing a job interview, Phil and I together, we had Phil's assistant Emmanuel with us. And Emmanuel was a groundskeeper when we first came there. And now he's the assistant to the village director. And we were kind of trying to probe and ask this lady who came more questions to see, like, are you a Christian? Do, do you have like a conversion that you can explain to us? And she, her English wasn't very good, and she seemed to be kind of upset and getting a little bit uncomfortable. And so we said to Emmanuel, go ahead and like, ask her in Swahili. And I know just enough Swahili to kind of be able to follow. And so I could tell as he started talking to her and asking her things in Swahili, how tuned in to the cross he was. And he just kept saying, well, you know, she would say, well, he came to save us. Jesus came to save us. And he said, well, how? How did he save us? Well, you know, she'd say, but how? And he, I mean, he just kept at her, how? And finally he said, what about the cross? And it was just so exciting, and it was such a vision for me of, of, of passing that passion on for the absolute centrality of the gospel and of the cross in all of our work. And I want to see that in all of them, in all of them. Uh, so let's move to the next one. So I just wanted to put pictures up here. These are our... Uh, pictures of, of our cottages. We have, these are the two boy cottages. We have Mama Beatrice and Mama Okuli with their boys. And then these are the girls' cottages. We have Mama Jehovah Yure, Mama Susan, and Mama Ana Masia with their girls. And, oh, stay there. <laughs> and this is really the heart of our work. I mean, I, I love our community students who come in just for the day for school, and, and, and I could talk about that too. But as I really think about what we're doing, I just look at these women, and I realize that while I do, we get to spend time with the kids, and we get to teach them, and we get to train them and all of this. But it's these women that the, that the real weight falls on. They're the ones who, when they get up and when they lie down and when they're walking along the way and when they're teaching them how to wash socks and whatever else, they're the ones who are going to affect these children for Christ. And that is what I pray for, for the ones we already have and for the ones that we are praying and searching and hoping will come as we continue to grow. We have a cottage that is being built, and we want to fill it up, but we need one of these mamas to be there to lead it. It's hard work, but it's not impossible. I tell them that all the time. I know it's hard, but it's not impossible. You can do it. So our last picture, this one, 
just want to talk about the future a little bit. These girls are some of our oldest girls. They're in our highest grade level at school. Third grade is the highest grade level, but um, the ones in the back row are either just turned 10 or just about to turn 10. And I look at them, and I want to see what God will do in their lives. Um, a lot of people ask us, you know, well, how long are you going to be? How long are you committed? Um, but it's interesting, this time that we come, came back, I think more and more people, more family members, I think, have said to us, when are you coming home? When are you coming home? And it, it's hard when people ask that, because they ask because they love us, and they miss us, and they want us to be here. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know, but my prayer is that we get to stay. My prayer is that we get to be there. Uh, a pastor that we were speaking with recently was talking about the idea of passing on your faith and seeing, seeing children live lives of long obedience. I don't know if that's like a common thing in American Christianity or what, but I'd never heard it before. I'm like, long obedience, that's what it is. That's what, that's what we want. And my prayer is really that we get to be there and see Christina and Annette and Maureen and Adela really take off as their own selves being disciples of Christ and live lives of long obedience. It's God who will do it. It's God who will do it, but I don't want to see it. <laughs> and so... Um, that's how long we'll be there, I pray. And I'm so thankful for all of you and all of the people who pray for us and who give and um, just support us in so many ways because um, it's, it's not without all of you that we will get to see that happen. And so I want to say also, please, if you have any kind of a passion for the work or for children or for prayer or for snacks, if you have a passion for snacks, you can come to Rafiki Prayer Group at the Hiller's house on Wednesday and um, just see how important the ministry of prayer is in this work. And I promise I'll keep talking about it, and I want you all to be able to see it, too, when it happens. So um, with that, I think I'll close in prayer. Let's pray. Lord God, you are awesome. You are sovereign. You are perfect. We praise your name. Lord God, I confess my sin, also my weakness, all of my failings. You know them. You see them. And I thank you for your cleansing and your forgiveness in Christ. And I thank you so much for this church. I thank you for calling all of us into a greater, a wider world of work. Thank you for these children and these mamas and all of the staff you've provided. God, I ask that you would bless all of us as we seek to live out your calling in whatever place, in whatever work. In Jesus' name, amen.